you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Daniel. If you're new to the things of the Bible, Daniel is a little more than halfway through. So open up to the half and turn just a little bit towards the end and you'll be in Daniel. Daniel chapter 5. Hear now the word of the living God. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. That the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. This is the word of the living God, and together we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, O Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would illumine our hearts and minds. We pray that you would be pleased that your word might be known among us. That the preaching of the word of Christ would be the word of Christ to the people of Christ. Give us aid from distraction. Give us gospel comfort and conviction, we ask. Make this the most important hour of our week. In Jesus' name. Amen. In the previous chapters of Daniel, the book that we've been walking through, King Nebuchadnezzar three times encountered various situations where God revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar. And by the third time, Nebuchadnezzar was shown great mercy and grace. This story, this book of Holy Scripture was written some 550 years 
before the birth of Jesus Christ. So we're now 2,500 years or so in the past. And this book about God's people in exile as a punishment for their failure to keep God's covenant. This book of God's people, most of whom were unfaithful and yet a few of whom were faithful, is given in the Old Testament to point to the reality that God was not finished with his promises, namely his chief promise to send his son that he might bring the blessings of Abraham to the far reaches of the world. Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan, Nebuchadnezzar, a great sinner, Nebuchadnezzar, an evil, prideful dictator, came to know the mercy of God and came to see who the living God was. But our text this morning gives us a question. Because here we meet one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors. Here we meet Belshazzar. And by the end of this chapter... Belshazzar would be one who would not be shown mercy and who would forsake the living God. This leaves us with a question. Perhaps many questions, but at least one question. What does it look like if the living God is rejected? What does it look like if the God who saves sinners and shows mercy to people who don't deserve it in their works? What does it look like if the living God is rejected if his mercy is spurned. So often in the pages of Scripture we see glorious pictures of what it looks like when God shows mercy to a great sinner. And they receive his mercy. They trust his son who was sent to die for sinners. We see glorious pictures all throughout the Bible, don't we? But sometimes we get pictures of what it looks like when the living God is rejected. What does it look like? Well, I think we could say there are at least three descriptions of what it looks like when the living God is rejected. And Belshazzar makes these clear for us. I want us to see then this picture of what it looks like for God and his mercy to be rejected. The first thing that we see in our text this morning is that it looks like arrogant sinfulness. Arrogant sinfulness. Look at the way that the narrative opens. Belshazzar, the king. We're not really given any description of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of chapter 4, it seems like he's shown great mercy, perhaps even converted to the living God. Chapter 5, verse 1 opens, and there's a new character on the throne. We're not given all the details. Sometimes we want details, but it's best for us to understand that the living God gives us details when he wants us to know them. We just meet Belshazzar, the king. And the text says that he was a son of Nebuchadnezzar. There are two options. Number one, Belshazzar is the literal son of Nebuchadnezzar. That's on the surface the most clear. But another possibility is this, that as often is the case in the Old Testament and even ancient Near Eastern writings, Later kings or later descendants are referred to as the son of so-and-so. Think about the, the line of the Hebrews as sons of Abraham, even though Abraham wasn't their literal, direct, biological father. 
Some scholars argue this. Nebuchadnezzar dies, it's pretty clear, in the year 562 B.C. Boys and girls, that's 560-some years before Jesus was born. And his son, some argue, was a different individual who reigned for about a year, was assassinated by his brother-in-law, who then reigns for about four years, followed by his son, who reigned for about a month. You see, there's great difficulty in Babylon. And then one of the men who took him out became king, but was largely absent because he wasn't liked for changing pagan religious traditions. And so his son that we have record of, Belshazzar, ruled Babylon. For our purposes, it doesn't really matter whether Belshazzar was the direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar or a further out descendant. But notice the arrogant sinfulness here. The kingdom hasn't gone long after the great mercies and grace shown to Nebuchadnezzar. And what do we read in the first few verses? The king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, what's interesting is that Daniel doesn't record here, but as the king is throwing a great feast and showing off with great immodesty his wealth and even his actions, the city of Babylon is under siege. Historical records record that at the time of Babylon's siege, boys and girls, that means other peoples coming to attack and take over. At the time of Babylon's siege, it was fully stocked with resources and protections. And so King Belshazzar is feasting while the enemies are surrounding his city. And he's showing off his greatness. He's showing off his glory. There is arrogance, there is pride, and there is a lack of modesty that is happening in Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 and following. And not only is there pride and arrogance, but there's also despicable blasphemy. Look at verse 2. While he tasted the wine, while he was drinking in the midst of all of his lords to show off his greatness, he gives the command to bring the vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from where? The temple in Jerusalem. These are the very elements of the temple of the Hebrew people, the old covenant people of God. And he says, bring them in here, that all of my women, wives, concubines, lords, that we may all drink in our sinful, blasphemous partying out of the very vessels commissioned by Yahweh, the living God. So then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, verse 3, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And then notice, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron and wood and stone. There's an arrogant sinfulness here. God had shown mercy to a previous ruler in Babylon. And now one of his descendants not only is glorying arrogantly in his self, but 
He's using the very instruments of old covenant worship to do it. Great pride and arrogance and lack of modesty. I wonder if maybe this morning you read this and like Nebuchadnezzar's story, it seems so distant. You might say to yourself, I would never show that level of arrogance, that level of pride, that lack of modesty. I mean, who who would throw a great party just to show off his own glory? Is there no shame here in the heart of Belshazzar? And yet, if we were to ask the question, how might we have been like Belshazzar? Or how is it that we sometimes even press in and wrestle with some of the sins of Belshazzar? If we think deeply, by the aid of the Spirit, they're there. Can you think of moments where people present themselves in arrogant, prideful ways? Can you think of moments where there's a lack of modesty and a showing off of their own glory? You need look no further sometimes than the clothing of men and women in our culture. Isn't it ironic? The very thing that God, the living God, gave us to cover our shame after sin is the thing that we keep wanting to take off in front of other people. As if the living God didn't say, clothe yourself. Oh, I want to be comfortable. It's okay for me to wear clothes that are scantily put together. Is that what God did in the garden? There's irony here. We can't relate to Belshazzar, and yet we can. Maybe your lack of modesty is a showing off to others, a pride to others. But here, in the depths of depravity, Belshazzar uses... The items of worship from the Jerusalem temple for his own glory. Now, later on in the story, we'll read a diagnosis of what went wrong. Daniel is summoned. Daniel interprets the dream. As a part of Daniel's interpretation in verses 22 and 23, he actually diagnoses what was wrong with Belshazzar's decisions. Look at verse 22. He recounts God's mercy... And God's goodness to Nebuchadnezzar. And then he says in verse 22, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. And you lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways. What a description of God. The God who, quote, holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways. You have not glorified. There are at least three things in that diagnosis, isn't there? Again, this is Daniel's diagnosis. Interpreting under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the vision, if you will, that Belshazzar gets. And what's the diagnosis? What was so wrong with this drunken party? Well, one, verse 23 says that Belshazzar was arrogant. He, quote, lifted himself up against the Lord of heaven, verse 23. Number two, there was idolatry. Verse 23 says that he, quote, praised the gods of silver and gold. Boys and girls, 
Is silver precious? Is it beautiful to look at? Yes. Is gold nice? Does it make wonderful jewelry and other kinds of things? Absolutely. But is it God? No. Is it something that we should worship? No. Belshazzar was worshiping the so-called gods of creation. This reminds us of Romans 1, doesn't it? We exchange the glory of the invisible God for the things that are created, and we worship created things. He was arrogant. He was idolatrous. Verse 23, thirdly, he refused to worship the true God. This is what it looks like when the living God is rejected. There is arrogant sinfulness, and with outward deeds, we are arrogant, we have false gods, and we refuse to worship and obey the living God. Look at verse 23, the very end. The God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. This is the diagnosis of the drunken party that Belshazzar throws with a lack of modesty in front of all of the kingdom. Well, in verses 5 through 12, as we heard read just a moment ago, a hand shows up on the wall. Boys and girls, this is one of the most intriguing stories in the Bible. A hand shows up and begins to write on the wall. Some scholars make the point. They note the fact that on the walls of the palace, perhaps in places where there would have been parties, are all kinds of pictures and designs of the glories of the kings. You kind of show off what you like, and most of the kings showed themselves off. So there'd be all kinds of descriptions there in Babylon about this king's wonderful successes. And on this very wall, a hand shows up. We'll find out later what was written. But as soon as the hand shows up, everything changes, doesn't it? The text tells us that Belshazzar goes from arrogant pride to As the scripture says, the knocking of the knees and the joints of his hips were loosened. You ever been so nervous and so afraid that your entire body feels it? That's what's happening here. What does it look like if the living God is rejected? There is somewhere, somehow, arrogant sinfulness. But secondly... When the living God is rejected, there is a forgetting of the mercy of God. There's a forgetting of the mercy of God. Our story continues in verse 13. The queen, likely Belshazzar's mother, says, hey, there's a guy in the kingdom named Daniel. Call him. We pick up the story in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is the one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the spirit of God is in you and that that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the astrologers have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they, they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you. That you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Another wonderful opportunity, isn't there, for Daniel to be puffed up with pride 
and arrogance, just like these pagan kings. Verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. So he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. This should sound familiar to those of us who just last week went through chapter four. But Daniel continues, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. This is a key interpretive verse for our understanding. The word of God is making clear by the voice of Daniel that Belshazzar in some way or other knew or should have known of the mercies of the living God. We heard this read, but he continues, verse 23, And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him and this writing was written. Verse 25, and the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene. Tekel Ufarsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a gold chain around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. You see, when the living God is rejected, there is arrogant sinfulness in the hearts of those who reject him. But there is also a forgetting of the mercy of God. Do you see how Daniel crafts this story? Firstly, The king pridefully says, I will give you money if you do this. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had done that. In chapter 2, verse 48, Daniel accepted Nebuchadnezzar's gifts. And at the end of our story, Daniel ultimately receives the chain and the robe. But here in verse 17, Daniel says, I'm not doing this for money. 
Ultimately, it seems that Daniel was making clear that his ability was not for sale. Nor was it his gift to sell, but the Lord's gift alone to use. Would that just about every TV preacher today have this heart. But notice Daniel's diagnosis of the situation. We've noted this already. Daniel says, Belshazzar, you should have known better. You should have humbled your heart in the presence of the living God, but you did not. In fact, you took that living God's items of worship and you used them for your own drunken glory. And this is the God, verse 23, that holds your breath in his hand. Now, just think about that for a moment, brothers and sisters. Think about the worst despot in all the world, the worst pagan ruler in all the world. Whoever comes to mind, think at the moment of their most arrogant pridefulness, the living God was giving them every single breath. This is irony of all ironies. The very God they refused to acknowledge is the God that they wouldn't even be able to breathe without. Daniel essentially says, you're forgetting the mercies of God. There's arrogant sinfulness. And there's a forgetting of the mercy of God. But our story reveals a third answer to the question, what does it look like for the living God to be rejected? And this perhaps is the most difficult for us to see. It looks like arrogant sinfulness, yes. It looks like the forgetting of the mercies of God, yes, but... Thirdly and finally, the person will be surprised by sudden judgment. Just after Belshazzar gives the command to clothe Daniel with a robe and a chain and make him third in command of all of Babylon, we read these final words of chapter 5. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. You know, the leader of the Medes that were circling around Babylon in the very moment where arrogant Belshazzar was drinking out of God's cups. Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. The handwriting on the wall came true. The one who was weighed and found wanting had his kingdom split in two and torn from him. You see, it looks like being surprised by sudden judgment. You see, in verses 5 through 12, there's quick revelation. In the midst of a drunken party, a hand shows up on the wall. Surprising revelation. Verses 6 and 7, there's fear Experienced bodily, the king begins to quake in his boots. He calls for anyone that can help him. Verses 22 to 30, the prideful, arrogant king who thought he was the ruler of the world was quickly reduced to nothing without warning. Now, friend, is this just a story that gets us to Jesus? You know, eventually Darius rules 
Then there are other kings which eventually allow the Jews to go back to the promised land and they go back and the temple is rebuilt and sacrifices continue and the feast continues and then enters the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, our Savior Jesus Christ, onto the scene who lives a perfect life and dies for sinners. Well, that's the ultimate trajectory of this story. God rules over pagan kings. But I would submit to you that this same theme about being surprised by sudden judgment is not just a story in Daniel. Let me give you two examples. Turn over to the book of Proverbs. Turn to the left. About a hundred or so pages. Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6. Verses 12 through 15, words of wisdom for any who will hear them. Proverbs 6, verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers, perversity is in his heart, he devises evil continually, he sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. Or maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, fair enough, but this is the Old Testament. This is the part of the Bible where God seems to come in sudden judgment. Turn with me to the book of Luke. The New Testament. From the mouth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke 12. Jesus Tells a story. Luke 12, verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said this, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, You have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? There's a a regular reminder throughout the pages of Scripture that judgment for sinners is coming. And you see, the the reality in the story of a man like Belshazzar is this. He didn't expect it. Here he is feasting. Here he is arrogantly putting down any thought of the God of the Hebrews. And that very night, his soul was quieted him. Friends, I hope as we walk through Belshazzar's story, you see the arrogant sinfulness, forgetting that God has promised to show mercy and has shown mercy. And the reality of sudden judgment is not just the story of a king in the Old Testament. But it's a picture of what it looks like for each person who rejects the living God. See, Nebuchadnezzar's story ends in chapters 2, 3, and 4 
with Nebuchadnezzar offering praise to God and eventually finally recognizing his own frailty in the light of the living God and bowing the knee. Belshazzar's ends with a simple word that he was killed and that his kingdom was given away. I wonder if you've made the connection of the name of the city that King Belshazzar ruled over. I wonder if you've thought about how that city plays throughout the Bible. It was a real city, boys and girls. 2,500 years ago, a real city with real soldiers and real walls and a real king. But later on in the Bible, yes, much, much later, that very city is used as a picture of the world in which we live. Turn to the very last book of the Bible. We don't have time to fully discuss all of the book of the Revelation. I know that disappoints many of you. One thing that you need to know is that in the book of the Revelation, there are essentially two cities and they're symbols. They're not meant to be interpreted literalistically. There's Babylon that all throughout the book of the Revelation is this picture of the city that is against God and against his ways and hates God's people. And then there's Jerusalem, the city that is a picture of God's people. And God's kingdom, so much so that in the second to last chapter of Holy Scripture, what do we see coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride for the living God? Jerusalem. But towards the end of the Bible, this picture, this city, shows up. And if I can be so bold, although we may pray and hope it not, it's possible that some of us are in that city. For there is coming another quick, sudden fall of Babylon. Revelation chapter 18 and verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins, that is Babylon's sins, that is all peoples everywhere throughout all times that have hated God and hated his Christ, hated his laws and hated his ways, hated his people. That's this city, verse 5. For her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered. To you and repay her double according to his works in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, sounds like Belshazzar, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Sounds like the rich farmer who tore down barns just so he could build bigger ones. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day. 
death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxurious with her will weep and lament for her. Yes, the world will weep when the world falls. Because what they've loved will be burning to the ground. When they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Don't put a period for Babylon at the end of Belshazzar's reign. For Babylon, the true and literal city would be crushed. But there is coming a day, very soon, when the world that is like Babylon, living luxuriously, hating God's people and hating God's ways, will be crushed. And you know, one of the most staggering things in all the description of the sudden judgment of the world that we see at the end of the Bible is the statement in Revelation 18.5. For her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Do you know the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Do you know the difference between a member of the city of Jerusalem in the book of the Revelation and a member of the city of Babylon in the book of the Revelation? One single promise that runs throughout all of the Bible. People who are Christians, people who are saved, people who are members of the city of Jerusalem have this promise from God. I see their sin and I will remember it no more. How staggering it is. How weighty it is to read a sentence like this. Don't you have sins, friend? When you see God's holy law, don't you understand that you are a lawbreaker and that God is just and holy? And he must, in his pristine holiness, render justice to the nth degree? And that you have offended not some king in a pagan land, but that your sin has offended a holy God who made you. The God who gives you breath and holds your ways in his hand. And all throughout the Bible, there is a steady warning that judgment is coming. Who among us doesn't have sins that could pile up to heaven? Sins that could be remembered. And if we were required to give sudden payment for such sins, it would crush us under the pristine weight of God's holiness. The only, the only glorious solution to Revelation 18.5, God remembering the iniquities of mind that pile up to the heavens. Evil deeds, evil thoughts, wicked ways, lies, deceit, arrogance, self-worship. Using the things of God, don't we like Belshazzar often do that for our own glory? The only thing that keeps those from reaching up to heaven is what the glorious scripture tells us God has done for sinners in his mercy. Putting those very sins on Christ. See, sometime after Belshazzar was crushed, the king of the world would be born and placed in a manger. 
but he would be largely unnoticed, meek, humble, full of a vision of the glory of the triune God in all things, and he would live a perfect life. And he would die on the cross. And the Bible speaks to this reality that as he died on the cross, he bore the condemnation and shame for the sins of all the people who would ever trust in him, past, present, and future. And that it is by faith that we look on him as the bearer of our judgment now. That upon Christ, judgment was poured out for sinners. So that every person who takes refuge in Christ can say, I do have sins that I have committed and they could pile as high as the heavens. But the king of heaven took them for me. And when his judgment comes, he has promised that he will not remember my sins anymore because they have been paid for. He's taken them on his own back and died for me and clothed me in his righteousness. What does it look like for this kind of mercy to be rejected? Well, it looks like arrogant sinfulness. It looks like an utter forgetting of the mercy of God. And it will one day soon look like sudden, surprising judgment. Friend, come out. Come out of Babylon. The gates of the city of Jerusalem, the one that King Jesus rules over, are open to you. Christ has said, there's not a thing that you have to do, but come to me. There's not a work that you must perform, but come to me. You can't clean yourself up in Babylon. So run to Jerusalem. The King will clean you. The King will clothe you. He will receive you. He will take you. And He will pay for all of your sin. So that a trillion years from now, the only thing that will be said of you is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Come out of Babylon. Don't sit at the drunken feast. Belshazzar. For judgment comes. And let us not be weighed and found wanting and have our kingdom divided and shredded away from us. The kingdom that we held on to so closely. Let's leave it. Let's follow the King of Kings. Let's pray. Almighty God, this picture is a weighty one. Help us, by your grace, to see the glories of what Christ, the true King, has done. Let us leave off from the ways of Babylon and fly to Christ. For your people, comfort us. And even as we see ourselves in the way that we used to be in a forgetful pagan king, remind us that we have Christ and that we are in him. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.